0: Welcome everyone to KRFY Morning Show's Garden Life Edition. Today is Tuesday, Feb- February 6, 2024, and my name is Julie Praczynski, here with my favorite co-host, Julie Calamine. Oh, Julie, I'm your only co-host. <laughs> <laughs> Still my favorite. Oh, thank you. And uh, thank you all for turning, tuning in to KRFY. Today's Garden Life topic is Let's Talk About Trees. So, I, I need to tell a little bit, little story about my parents' first visit here from Nebraska, and they just couldn't understand what all the fuss was about logging the trees. That was the time. And this country is truly tree growing country, after all, and they were right. How perfect to have an organic tree orchard here in Sandpoint. So, our frequent morning show guest is the or- orchards superintendent, and for three years, Kyle Nagy has visited us us on Garden Life to share his knowledge. So welcome to you, Kyle, Nagy. Yeah, (laughs)
1: thanks for having me
0: on. We've been working on this for like almost two years now, so I think we're making progress,
1: Kyle. There we go. We're
0: closer than we were. Yes. Uh, But first, let's let's talk a little bit about the weather. You know, maybe we don't want to, but we're going to. So here we go. Uh, I did hear there was some snow in the mountains last night, so that's a good good news today chance of rain down here 30% is a with a high of 43 tonight patchy fog then slight chance of rain snow and patchy fog low of 32 tomorrow same thing 30% chance of rain snow then chance of rain 41 degrees and then on and on. on. Oh stop please. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it's all kind of the same folks. Get out there and enjoy it if you can and if not get out your crafts.
2: Yeah or the cribbage board or Or some other. That's right. Or the
0: garden catalog. Yes it is that time of year. I, I looked at my garden catalog yesterday. So let's get right to the important topic of the day is What everyone thinks about this time of year is their trees. So I'd like to introduce Kyle Nagy. He's the superintendent. Nagy.
1: Nagy. Nagy. (laughs) You got it. We're killing each other because we keep thinking
0: the other message. Superintendent and Orchard Operations Manager of the U of I Organic Agriculture. And welcome, Kyle.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: Another winter and early spring to talk about trees. So, so give us a little intro to yourself and what, t- what brought you to trees?
1: Yeah, well, uh, I've, I've always been interested in trees. Uh, growing up, we had some fruit trees around, uh, around the property, and uh, I was always climbing around in those. So that definitely spurred my interest. Um, but uh, then when I got to school, I actually, uh, university, I started going for nursery management. And within nursery management uh, i I found uh, orchard management, and that really led me uh, down this path. How cool
0: that so you're, you you come, come by it naturally. you grew up with it, and it was something that you thought that followed you.
1: Yeah, yep, my parents weren't in agriculture, but uh, we definitely uh, had it around the house right,
0: sure. right. Um, so I guess we'll start with pruning. Why do we prune?
1: Yeah, so pruning uh, comes down to what your goals are for for the pruning process. Uh, when I'm talking about fruit trees, I'm I'm always talking to, or thinking about fruit production, um, and uh, a lot of that fruit production uh, can be uh, increased by by a good pruning, uh, making sure that you're keeping your your uh, fruit spurs around, which is where uh, your fruit comes out of year after year uh, on your apples and pears. Um, so it, it's uh, good to know uh, know the different parts of the tree to make sure that you're you're not removing any of your fruit spurs. That uh, is going to lower your production.
2: Yeah, and they look a little like a twig, but they're actually the the little twiggy bit, short bit that the fruit's going to grow on.
1: Yeah, yep. It's it's kind of a swollen node. It doesn't really get that long, or, or uh, and it's it's. Uh, Rounder than a lot of the other twigs that are on the tree. So and that
0: and the water sp- sprouts don't do any good. So that's the first thing to take off. Yeah, the water
1: sprouts are are those guys that just go straight up, straight up. And and I we consider those an energy sink. Um, it's stealing a lot of energy from the rest of the tree and not uh, giving you anything back. It's not usually going to produce fruit fruit spurs that will actually produce any fruit.
0: When I first started pruning, I really watched the trees when they flowered to figure out where all the flowering was, because of course they don't all pollinate, but at least you know where the spurs are and what it looks like.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's it's good to get out there when you're in bloom and, and take a look at that. And Depending on your looking at your bloom, you can get an idea of uh, what your fruit production is going to be like that year, uh, depending on pollination, of
0: course. Right, right. What about ornamental trees?
1: Ornamental trees. So uh, usually we're, we're more of focused on shape uh, for the ornamental trees. Of course, we're removing any dead limbs and that type of thing and anything that could be hazardous, um, but uh, mostly looking at shaping, um, depending on the, the type of ornamental tree uh, there's different techniques uh, for shaping it uh, to kind of cater to the natural shape of the tree. Mm-hmm. Um, but with fruit trees, um, what I'm thinking a lot about is uh, is air and light infiltration through that canopy um, because those, that fruit needs that light on it to, to ripen fully. Um, and then we want to have a nice open, airy canopy so that the, the leaf surfaces all dry out Uh, when we have any, uh, morning dew or, or overnight rains or anything like that, we want those leaves to dry out as fast as possible.
0: Are there any tricks for increased growth or decreased growth as far as pruning?
1: Um, it's, there, there's definitely a balance there. Um, so usually I'm, I'm making, uh, there's, there's different types of, of cuts in pruning, thinning cuts versus heading cuts. Mm. Um, and, and that's mostly to direct your growth. So, uh. Uh, A thinning cut will usually direct growth uh, in a single direction where a heading uh, cut can uh, spur multiple twigs or or growth from multiple spurs.
0: Okay, and a lot of information out there. I mean, the library, wherever you look, there's pruning information. Yeah,
1: yep, and and I always tell people no two people would prune a tree exactly the same. It's definitely a a balance of art and science because— you there. There would never be two identical trees, but if there were, no two people would prune them exactly the same.
2: Right. So we can be a little forgiving with ourselves. Yeah. And don't get don't it be right. hard on yourself. You'll yeah. you'll
1: you'll get better. And yes. and I think uh, a part of that is is to go back uh, later in the year or even the following year and look at your your previous year's pruning and you can see what that did, how that directed growth. If it uh, if it did something you liked or if it did something you weren't happy with then you can kind of adjust your your pruning technique.
0: Sure. I remember Rich said last year that you're just pruning off last year's growth, basically. That's the way he described it. And again, it's a personal yeah, way.
1: Yeah, definitely. Especially, yeah, when you're talking ornamentals and you're trying to keep that that shape, especially some uh, of the more compact trees, that's definitely something to think about. Mm-hmm.
0: Um last year when we were talking about winter pruning we uh you suggested waiting as long as you can have you pruned yet this year Uh,
1: no we haven't started pruning yet and if the weather keeps up like it is we might prune a little bit earlier um so maybe end of february but uh i'd say the bulk of our pruning is done in the first half of march Uh. and and this year is a prime example of why we do that we had that really cold temperature in in mid-january and if you uh, prune before then, uh, you have those exposed cuts. Um, mm-hmm. And when it gets really cold, you can actually have uh, tissue dye um, near those branch tips. So from where you pruned, you could potentially see some dieback of 6 to 10 inches. Wow. Um, where we're, we're holding off and pruning later. So then that dieback, back, if we're getting it on ours uh, in January we have the ability to prune that off uh, when it comes to our our pruning period in that early march late february
0: late february good and what about your berries have you pruned them
1: um so berries um uh, we're mostly raspberries out by us and uh it's we we do some of both sometimes we'll remove old canes in the fall um just because we're in such a rush we have so much to do in the spring. Um, but if you can, if if you have the ability and uh, the time to do it in the spring, it's good to actually wait until spring to remove your dead canes because over the winter, any reserved carbohydrates that are in those uh, dying canes is forced back down into the the root zone. So um, by s- by leaving those in there over the winter, you'll you'll actually get a little bit of extra boost out of there.
0: Yeah, definitely. I did that last year, and I. I'm looking at them now, thinking, oh, it could be getting close to time to with my blackberries and my raspberries to prune them. Good. So, uh, how old is your orchard out there?
1: Uh, let's see. The first trees were planted right around 2008, so uh, we're we're getting up there.
0: Yeah, so now it's a more mature orchard. It, are there any different? uh, maintenance issues.
1: Yeah. Um, and, uh, so our, our oldest trees were planted in that 08, 09, but, uh, we have some younger blocks of the trees that are probably only about six years old or so. So we still have some younger trees out there, but, uh, the older trees, once they've, uh, we kind of get them in the the shape that we want and we have our scaffolding branches established, there's, uh, definitely less annual pruning. It's, it's more of just a maintenance pruning to, to make sure that, uh, we're not creating any shade in that canopy.
2: Yeah, and does, a, a, I imagine they will vary from species or hybrid to hybrid, but do apple trees have sort of a peak production years, like when they're 15 years to 30? Or, or is it true or not?
1: Yeah, yep. So, um, what we have in the orchard are uh, varieties on a semi dwarfing rootstock. So, those trees will get into that like 12 to 15 foot range. And uh, those, uh, they reach kind of their their best. Um, or they begin their their full production at around 10 years and then they're productive for around 25 to 30 years Mm. so we still have a a lot of life in that orchard out there right Um, the dwarfing trees which are the smaller ones that only get about eight feet tall those ones have a shorter production life but then uh, the standards uh, that are on their own rootstock or a, a seedling rootstock that are the trees that get 30 40 feet tall those trees will produce for over a hundred years.
0: So the people that bring those old trees back, it isn't it isn't really a, a, um, a failing if effort if it's a it's a root tree. Yeah, 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 for sure. Right. You hear about that? People bringing back an old lost tree.
2: Right. Um,
0: the. Um, let's see.
2: I have a question. Yes. Are, are standard trees used in the fruit industry anymore?
1: So not, not in commercial production. Huh. Um, but it's definitely, I feel like it's something that's uh, gaining popularity again, especially with, uh, more people interested in homesteading and, and that type of thing, because. You can plant that tree and and know that your grandkids and your great grandkids are going to get to climb that tree and eat that fruit. That same fruit that you had. So, right. um, Definitely for for longevity, if you have a, a piece of property that you're planning to keep in the family, I'd I'd stick with standards because they'll they'll be there forever.
0: Yes. Right. Yeah. Ditch trees. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um. So now let's talk about the soils. The, it is so wet out. Are we? Are you worried about how wet your soils are? are in, is there anything that we can be doing to protect our trees?
1: Uh, at this point, with how wet the soil is, there's not a whole lot to do at this time. Um, you, you can try and improve your drainage uh, during the off-season or during the summer season and everything, but it's this is just tough conditions to deal with. And, yeah. and we were discussing earlier how uh, before we had that real deep freeze in January, um, there wasn't any frost in the ground, so that first uh, big snow that we got, uh, I saw trees that were just tipping over right right out of the ground because their root system was saturated with water and it hadn't frozen up to really solidify them there. And then you get the weight of that heavy wet snow, and and it yeah. just tips them right over. Yikes! So
0: Mother Nature. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no,
1: it's it's definitely, and, and there's not really anything uh, to be done about that. That's just kind of the the nature of the beast.
2: Okay. So I know it's hard to think about it, and I I don't even know if you might consider different species if some are more resilient around that type of a situation, but we certainly seem to have it here every couple of winters. Yeah, definitely. And and
1: the the ornamental trees tend to have a a shallower root system. Mm. Uh, The conifers don't have much of a problem because they have the big taproot going down, but... Uh, yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's definitely hard on those ornamentals when we have years like that.
2: Yeah, right, right. right. Is that the main thing we should be concerned about? I mean, there, didn't, there they are kind of standing in water, a lot of trees right now. Is there an insect or pest, any kind of worry from that standpoint? I,
1: I wouldn't be too worried about insects or pests right now. Um, if it continues into the spring, we might have uh, some fungal issues um, just because it's, it's so damp down there. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't think that would be too much of an issue right now.
0: Another reason to prune out very well, you know, th- yeah. really thin it out so you can get some airflow, even if it is wet. Yeah,
1: yep, right. and and yeah, hopefully not your branches aren't holding on to that heavy, wet snow as well.
0: Right. right. When are you um, amending the soil, or do you amend the soil under the trees?
1: Yeah, so uh, we use a uh, granular uh, fertilizer, uh, certified organic, of course, um, since we're a USDA-certified orchard um but uh what we get is uh mostly a, a pelletized uh chicken uh, manure um and uh we get that on pretty early in the growing season uh it's not a, a fast release uh chemical fertilizer that you can put on and expect instant results so that's something that we need to get worked down into the soil so um really as, as soon as the soil is is workable we'll we'll start getting our fertilizer out there usually uh late march uh early april something like that
2: so late spring yeah and workable just means the it's not so wet that yeah you
1: can't it's it's not a, a mud it. pit out there right, <laughs> right. and you're right.
2: damaging
0: the ground driving on it or walking exactly. on even right. walking yeah. on it it's yeah. so no, soft right now that's definitely
1: a concern when it's this damp yeah uh, you can yeah. definitely cause some compaction really quickly
0: sure uh, do you have a cover crop under those trees?
1: Yeah, so we've uh, experimented with uh, several different cover crops out in the orchard. Um, what, what we've kind of stuck with so far has been uh, the Dutch white clover. Uh, we like to use legumes that are going to fix nitrogen uh, into our soil. Um, and uh, we, we've tried some other clovers and, and definitely some, some mixes of clover and alfalfa, uh, and those have worked really well. Um, I like that white Dutch clover because it doesn't get really tall. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something that we're always thinking about uh, around our trees, uh, because if we have a a tall cover crop that's going right to the trunk of the tree, that's creating a lot of cover for our rodent friends to to do their damage. Sure. So so yeah, a a low ground cover is, is definitely helpful and definitely keeping it low around the base of the trees is important.
0: Right. Yeah. And you mulch most of your trees with the pea gravel. Still, you're still doing that.
1: Yeah. Yep. Um, we're we're uh, and we're keeping up on that on the young trees. It's not as much of an issue with our older trees once they get more established. Um, but uh, yeah, the the pea gravel works uh, in a, a few different ways. Uh, it makes it easy to pull out the annual weeds when you get weed seeds mm-hmm. blowing in there and sprouting. They they come right out of that pea gravel really yeah. nicely. Um, and then it also can help with uh, rodents because having that base, we do about a three foot diameter circle at the base. So keeping uh, the, the vegetation down in that area keeps the rodents uh, away from your trunk so they can't do their girdling. Um, and then it also helps because that pea gravel doesn't really consolidate uh, well. So if they try burrowing under there, it's it's hard for them to keep a, a tunnel.
2: Oh. oh, yeah. Tunnel yeah. won't stay open in that gravel. Yeah. Right, yep. right. That does help. That's probably your biggest pest are rodents. Yes.
1: Yep. If, if I could uh, find find a way to take care <laughs> of those, that, that would be the big thing. So anybody that can help uh, you, you reach out as soon as you can. <laughs>
0: Needs some falconers to come yeah, out yep. and clear and, it out. And,
1: and we we've definitely, uh, we try to encourage natural predation. So we have um, some tall posts out in the orchard for oh. our, our raptors. And uh, we, we see quite a few um, red-tailed hawks there through the season. Um, And then we're also finding owl pellets around the base of those poles. So uh, I I like to say that we have a day shift and a night (laughs) shift out there working pest control.
2: Well, how great to be able to watch and learn from our organic orchard just on the edge of town. It's not even, it's just so easy to even get to. Um, We are going to talk about more aspects of the way that Uh, Kyle is managing this orchard and general orchard topics. But what do you think about a little song break, Julie? Yeah, let's go ahead and do that, Julie. Sounds great. All right. So we have for you, ooh, we have for you, I thought we had a different song, and I'm going to try and fix it, guys. Looks like we've got um, something happened in our our scheduling, so we're going to have a different song, and it's a good one. Welcome back, everyone. This is Julie Praczynski
0: with KRFY. That's right. And we're still talking about trees with Kyle here from the Idaho Organic Apple Orchard, University of Idaho Organic Apple Orchard. And uh, we're going to move right into regenerative agriculture. I saw that on your bio on the website, Kyle. And what does that mean?
1: So regenerative agriculture is is kind of a new push um, to to push past organic actually, um, and uh, the idea behind it is we're we're actually regenerating uh, the ecosystem, and uh, specifically the soil um, is is what we're uh, looking at. Um, for my my masters that I completed at uh, at U of I, um, my final project was actually uh, looking into regenerative agriculture and how it's being defined and, and who's defining it. And it really came down to uh, who is who is defining it, whether it's the, the people that are actually responsible for the production or the marketing people or consumers. Um, but uh, what it really seemed to come back to um, for, for everybody was uh, better care of our soil. Um, and uh, it's it's been an increasing area of study, um, soil health in plant production, because... That is so. Uh, our our plants are rooted in uh, in that soil, and that's where they're getting all their their nutrition from. So, uh, by taking care of your soil and not depleting nutrients, uh, that's that's a, a good way to keep that soil nice and healthy. Um, regenerative agriculture, as a as a certif- uh, certification, uh, involves such things as um, uh, incorporating animals and plants within a, a system. And a lot of that is is trying to close the loop on on your nutrient cycle. So without our our goal is kind of not to have to bring in outside fertilization uh, to for the orchard or our garden or anything uh, by using uh, our our chicken manure, our compost, things that we're able to create on site uh, that that can can help with their fertility.
2: Yeah, you want all your inputs to be. From within, if possible. It's exactly. It's such a great concept. And I would like, if you can, to ask, I would like to ask you to compare that to the concept of permaculture because we read a lot about that too. It sounds like they might have some similarities.
1: Yeah, yeah. There, there's definitely similarities between permaculture and regenerative agriculture. I'd say permaculture has more focus on, uh, on, on ecosystem building, as in uh, plant communities together, and interplanting, um, where, where regenerative agriculture is, is more of a focus on soil rather than uh, plant communities.
0: Yeah, cool. That's interesting. Uh, so last year I went to a biochar conference. Are you doing any biochar work at all?
1: So, uh, yeah, we, we've done a little bit with biochar. We haven't used it in our orchard yet, um, but uh, we've been working with it in our uh, educational market garden. Uh, we have about a quarter-acre uh, demonstration market garden out at the SOAC here in town, and uh, we use that uh, mostly for, for classes for extension, and uh, then we also have our summer interns working in that garden. And uh, what we do is it's diversified vegetable production, so they're growing 20 different species and um, it's it's great because the interns get to utilize that produce in in their uh, food, um, but then the rest of it goes to our, our local food bank here. So last summer, I think we donated right around 4,000 pounds of produce. Wow. So, Amazing. Yeah. And, and I think that's a, a great lesson or great experience for our interns as well, being able to to go from seed to to harvest to uh, washing to packaging, and then be able to bring that into the food bank and see how appreciative everyone is to have that produce coming in every week—it's it's really a a neat experience for everybody.
2: Fantastic! Yeah, what a great experience for those guys. Um, back just for a moment, back to Biochar, Kyle. Yeah. It's not, biochar is not like when I empty out my charcoal grill after making <laughs> steaks. Can you take just a moment and tell us what is it? How does it come into being? What is that stuff?
1: Yeah, so so biochar, uh, it can have a lot of different uh, materials used, um, and uh, it seems that it's dependent on um, agriculture and forestry in the area, on what is actually being used to create biochar um, in heavy forestry areas like we have here. Uh, biochar is created mostly from uh, uh, debris from logging operations. Uh, where in more agricultural regions, uh, they use um, the the debris that's coming off of the fields. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and what it's what they're doing is they're they're burning that uh, in a in a certain way so that there's not a lot of oxygen uh, entering that, and that creates a, a very high carbon uh, charcoal. Uh, that's then used in in agriculture and forestry. Um, it can be used for a number of different things. It has uh, moisture retention capabilities, so it can help your your soil hold better moisture, and it can also uh, retain nutrients better. So you're not leaching off nutrients through the soil into the groundwater. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's definitely a, a growing area of interest in in agriculture. It's
0: an ancient practice for in South America. <clears throat>
1: For sure. Yeah. Yes. Yep. They have been doing this in the Amazon uh for, for millennia. Right. It's, it's right. really really an, an old technique. And it it, is. It's great that it's getting more attention.
0: Uh-huh.
2: Very
1: neat.
0: Fascinating. I know Steve Myers doing it up at his his property and he was all excited about it. Telling yeah, me
1: about yep. it. And and we we've used it in the in our market garden by by doing a trial with three different beds that are all planted with the same families of vegetables and then we have it at three oh. different strengths. Uh-huh. So so just and and we just uh, did that last year so we we haven't really seen any results from that yet but we're interested to see what that does over the next few years.
0: Right? You can right. figure out what your dose is. Will you do, will you put it on every year or
1: So it's something that stays in the soil okay. once it's there. Doesn't so it's break not down. something that has to be reapplied often. Okay, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's
0: interesting. Uh, let's move to pollination now. We got bees to think about. Um So how do you encourage bees to come in, or do you bring in hives?
1: Yeah, so uh, we we try to do a little bit of both. Um, Early on, probably a a decade ago out at the orchard, uh, we planted a bunch of flowering shrubs um, around the perimeter of the field, um, and that's definitely helped uh, our our local pollinator communities. Um, And then we also bring in uh, honeybees um, because it's— you you get a box full of eighty thousand bees, and they they can do a lot of pollination. Yeah, um, we've worked with uh, mason bees a little bit, but our issue was we had a hard time getting those mason bees to stick around and uh, and be be on site the next year. Right. Um. So uh. Yeah. The the honey bees have, have really worked out well for us. We we work with a, a beekeeper out of uh, Western Montana. Um. If you drive around town, you um or out in the valley, you'll see his it's like a baby blue, uh, bee boxes is what he's, uh, his are. And, uh, yeah, I think he brings us usually around, uh, a dozen hives each year. And, uh, usually what he does is he brings them on to a site for pollination and then he removes them, uh, to bring them out for honey production on a different, uh, field. Uh, but since he knows we're certified organic and we're not spraying anything harmful to his bees, he leaves his bees there all summer. So we oh. get pollination and he gets honey production, and it uh, works out well for everybody.
0: Yes, that's a great fix because I think moving them is kind of hard on them too.
1: Yeah, yeah, it definitely can be.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Are your shrubs native? Native shrubs? Yeah, yep. Yes. So
1: so we were working with uh, native shrubs to, to try and uh, recreate some of the local ecosystem uh, near the orchard so that we'd have uh, good pollen sources and nectar sources early in the season. Early, early the blooming. Whole. Yeah, yes. yep. Yeah, it's good to have uh, plants that are blooming in, in all those seasons. Right, right.
2: Bring them in early on when the, the trees are blooming. Right. And for homeowners, residents that have home fruit trees, they would be hopefully thinking about doing this too.
0: Yes, yes. Our mason bees took over. At first, we thought, oh, it's a failure. But we keep our little houses up there. And every year, we have a few more. So maybe nice. they're adjusting to, yeah, no, that's to great. our area. But we are desperate for pollinators. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah.
1: definitely good to have them around.
0: Yes, it is. And the native connection, the native plant connection, is is something that I guess I had always heard, but I didn't realize that the bees and... Plants, you know, they live together. They know each other
1: for sure. Yeah. So definitely. the native
0: plants are good for the native bees.
1: Yeah. Right? Yep. They they always have some something that's blooming the, right to give them that nectar and pollen. Right. Um. If if for people that are interested in uh, native plants and and native landscaping, I, I wanted to mention uh, there's a new nonprofit or a chapter of a nonprofit in town. Uh, national foundation called uh, Wild Ones. Uh, we have a new chapter that just opened up in Sandpoint or North Idaho called the Northern Rockies chapter. Um, it's uh, headed up by George Garrig. Um, if who if you've met him, you 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 would have no doubt that this is going to be a success because he is one of the most passionate individuals I've met. Uh, but uh, Wild Ones uh, focus is really on native plants and uh, natural landscaping and they're uh, trying to preserve biodiversity through preservation, restoration, and establishment of native plant communities. Okay.
2: Great. Great. And, Kyle, could you repeat when that's happening?
1: Oh, yeah. So uh, they actually have a, a watch party for an event uh, this Friday, February 9th, uh, from 5 to 6 at the East Bonner County Library here in Sandpoint. Uh, there's going to be a, a, a kind of a lecture from the, the founder uh, of the of the Wild Ones nonprofit.
0: Oh, the founder, the national.
1: Yes, the national founder. Uh-huh. Yeah, yep. So it, it should be a great event.
0: Yes, yes, at the library Friday night.
1: Friday night from five to six.
0: Five to six. Great. Is there a website or anything? Um, if...
1: I, they, I know there's a national website. Okay. I'm not sure there's a, a, yeah, a chapter uh, site set up, but uh, yeah, I'm sure you can find more information there.
0: Great. That
2: sounds interesting.
0: Great. Now to the depressing part. So we're seeing, uh, we have a, a couple of bug and disease questions for you here. Um, we're seeing a lot of clear jelly on fruit trees. And I did a little research, found gummos, gummiosis. and I really don't know what that is, and uh Give, give us your take on it.
1: Yeah, so so gomosis is is something that's uh, fairly common to see, especially on our stone fruits. Uh, our cherries in the area tend to you see quite a bit of this. And gomosis isn't itself a, a pest or a disease, but it's a symptom. So it's telling you that that tree is under stress. Um, and that stress can come in in many different forms. It can be a, a pest in the tree, a, a borer of some kind. Uh, It could be uh, a disease that is is, uh, hurting that tree. Uh, It could be something as as, uh, easy as as, uh, damage to the trunk. Maybe somebody hit it with a, a weed whacker when they were trying to clean up around the base of it. But that gamosis just tells you that that tree is under stress.
0: Is it coming from where the bug is? I mean, if you
1: not not, not necessarily not necessarily. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it it can it usually is coming out from uh, from the crotches and, and branch unions is where you see it most often, or from uh, pruning cuts from the previous year. Um, but that doesn't tell you that's not a, a sign to say this is where the problem okay. is. Okay. That's just telling you that there's overall this, this tree is under stress. Okay. Um so some more more research is, is required to figure out exactly what's wrong with that and, and how to to address it.
0: So it's happening over the winter, or is it probably there in the summer and
1: yeah, it, you yep, just don't notice it? Yeah, it's it's gonna be more evident uh when the leaves have all dropped okay. and everything and the trunk is more visible. But yeah, it's it's something that you're you'd probably see throughout the season.
0: Okay. And our cherry tree has yellow blobs dropping off of it. Is that the same thing? Yeah. Okay. Yep.
1: yep. It just oozes out, and uh, it's it's. I think it's considered a bacterial ooze, um, but it's not the bacteria that you're you're trying to treat. It's actually uh, a symptom of the larger problem. Right. right. Yeah.
0: And then I have also have moss growing on my cherry tree. Yeah. I don't like that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the the moss isn't isn't too big of an issue. Okay. Um, it's not taking anything away from your tree. Uh, usually mosses and lichens, it's more of a symbiotic relationship where uh, the moss or lichen might be stealing some some nutrients from the tree, but it's also uh, photosynthesizing oh. and providing some, some yes. benefit to the tree as well. It's so,
0: nice and green. Yeah,
1: yep. So I, I wouldn't be too worried about okay, that. Okay,
0: good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, so uh, controls and. Pest disease and controls for winter sprays, are you spraying yet? or I mean, after the rains are done, of course, but when will you spray?
1: Yeah, so uh, we'll usually spray right after we're done pruning. Um, so uh, in that like mid-march area, we'll we'll spray on a dormant oil. Might be a little bit earlier this year if our trees look like they're starting to wake up a little sooner. Uh, but that dormant oil can can be uh, put on those trees uh, all the way up to like green tips when the buds are starting to swell and almost open. Right. Um, so so that's one one that's uh, good to do, especially on your fruit trees. Uh, that at, what it is is basically an oil, uh, and you spread a thin coat of oil over the whole tree, and that uh, smothers any insect eggs that are in those nooks and crannies on there, um, so that it it coats them, so they can't respire, and they essentially Uh, just can't breathe and and die there. So Mm -hmm. that can definitely help on on your pest problem. So you're having fewer fewer pests in the spring.
0: Are you going to do any early spraying, preventative spraying for the potential mildew and problems that we'll have from all the moisture?
1: Yeah, um, we, we don't do anything preventative right away. Um, what what we're doing is we'll track uh, degree days and our moisture events. So uh, tracking degre- degree days is something that's very important, especially in organic agriculture. And it uh, depends on really knowing the life cycle of the pest or disease that you're trying to target. Um, and then Uh, attacking that when it's most vulnerable, most Mm. likely to be treated. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, like uh, one of our big concerns, especially in a really wet, cool spring, uh, would be apple scab, which is a fungal disease. And that's something that we're spraying uh, a micronized sulfur for. And uh, sulfur is is great for uh, most fungal diseases. Um, But what we're doing is we're we're tracking to see when that, uh, based on temperatures and moisture events, when that, Uh, the spores are most likely uh, to be spreading. And uh, and that's when we're trying to target those treatments. So rather than... Uh, doing uh, a spray once a week, every week, no matter what. We're we're watching our temperatures and saying, okay, this is when we're most likely to have an infection uh, become widespread. And then that's when we're targeting those sprays.
0: And then just that one time or we'll, we'll, depending?
1: I, depending on the spring, I'd say we'll do between uh, three and four oh, applications okay. of, of sulfur. Um, but uh, but that's definitely down from uh, a lot of commercial uh, conventional orchards that are spraying much heavier than that right. to, to prevent the issue.
0: Right. That's degree days. That's very scientific. So you would find <laughs> that information uh, at university websites and things about?
1: Yeah. So you, you can do your own degree day calculations, uh, based on your, your high and low temperature at home. Mm-hmm. Um, we're planning to, to put some information out on our Facebook page to let people know when we're spraying and what we're spraying for, just to give them an idea Great. of where we are in the pest cycle. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that'll be helpful for some yes, folks out there. Yes,
0: definitely. De- I always go to the university sites when I have any questions anyway. So that'll be great. Yeah. We got our own. Uh, a couple of other things I just wanted to mention about Japanese yew, mm-hmm. poisonous trees, just the awareness of uh, of planting something that could hate, that could hurt the wildlife and and critters in the area. Are you familiar with uh, Japanese yew? Yeah. yeah.
1: Yep. And I, I know it's been responsible for wildlife deaths yes. across the state. Um, and is, is beautiful as it can be I I think that's just another reason to to really to stick with natives when yes. you can because those native plants um they they might get chewed on a little bit but they're not going to hurt any of the wildlife right. so it's right. it's a uh, good to good to use those natives when you can
0: right the other thing I read about was the nandina and I, I, you go to the Home Depot or the places and you see trees and shrubs you've never ever ever seen before like complete new varieties and this nandina is interesting too because it's it's uh berries are toxic to the birds like the um the migrating spring birds come in and or the fall birds and come in and eat the fall berries and kills them. Oh man, yeah. Nandina. So oh. be right. aware of that one too.
2: Right. I think it's good that you're pointing that out, Julie. We don't want to be planting No, stuff. I was
0: very upset when I read that. Okay, so this last winter, a quick story. I was in New York in the fall, and, and I couldn't believe how many apple varieties there were. It was crazy. I bet there was, at one farmer's market, I bet there was 100 different varieties of apples. It blew my mind. W- why is that so important? I know you are... Uh, uh, apple orchard and, uh, heritage, heritage apple orchard. Yeah.
1: Yep. Um, so, so we grow uh, 68 different varieties out at the the ag center here in Sandpoint. And some of those varieties do really well in our area and others of them uh, seem to just limp along sometimes. Um, so, um, but yeah, it's, it's important to, to try and, uh, preserve these heritage varieties as much as possible. Um, because once, once these varieties are lost, um, it's, it's not like they can be re, re-bred or anything like that. So um, it's, uh, it's important to try and preserve these while we have them for, for future generations. Mm-hmm. Um, we work a little bit with uh, the Lost Apple Project, uh, which is out of eastern Washington. Uh, and they're uh, a nonprofit that's going around and visit, doing a lot of historical research and then finding these old homesteads that are 100, 120 years old. And they're locating the original fruit trees from those, uh, those homesteads. And like we were saying, those mm-hmm. standard trees can be productive for over 100 years. Um, and uh, they've actually rediscovered uh, many varieties. I think they're up to around a dozen now wow. that uh, were believed to have been extinct. So it's, it's amazing the work that they're doing. And uh, we're working with them and hoping to plant out some of those rediscovered varieties in our orchard. Uh, to have them as a preservation orchard, so that we can count on those varieties being here for for propagation for the foreseeable future.
2: Yes, and that leads me to a question about this, Kyle. Here we are in the Pacific Northwest, and of course, a great apple producing region. Um, and finding those old varieties that have persevered, you know, year after year, no matter what the weather was, that's very important. But it, as you're talking about the varieties out here in the West versus on, in New England and all of that, while Julie's saying there she could find 100 varieties, is that just a is it a just a more desirable region for growing apples or is it the culture that people are hanging on to them? what what makes it so diverse there?
1: Yeah, the the East Coast definitely has a, a lot longer apple history uh, than than the west out here. Um, in our orchard, I think we have, maybe a, a handful of varieties that uh, originated uh, in the Western United States, where we probably have 50 varieties that are from uh, the Eastern part of the U.S. And and that's because uh, of, of, of the colonization mm-hmm. coming over from, from Europe. Um, they already had a lot of great varieties over there at that time. So it's varieties that were brought over uh, and varieties that were, were bred or found as chance seedlings uh, on the East Coast. And, uh, were very productive and tasty apples so they they grew in popularity quickly. Um, but uh, yeah, the interesting thing is they uh, a lot of those early apples uh, that were used on the East Coast weren't used as fresh eating apples. Uh, they were mostly used for cider. Um, and then then we get into the era where uh, there there's more breeding of uh, storage apples and keeping apples because, you you back then you couldn't go to the grocery store and pick up an apple in in January you had to have an apple in your root cellar that stored and kept well that long mm-hmm. so um so yeah there's there's a lot of great varieties uh that uh, originated on the east coast
0: yes i think the what was it the red delicious that kind of kind of was the impet impetitus whatever <laughs> uh that kind of started this preserving the varieties because everybody was going to just the red oh. delicious and that was becoming a less and less delicious apple
1: yeah yeah definitely and the the red delicious that's in the stores nowadays is v- extremely different from the original uh, it is. delicious variety it is they've so. really
0: stepped it up yeah it's worse yeah and, yeah and it's and not as good this, oh not it's as
1: good no yep the issue is uh <laughs> when with commercial orchards are, are looking for for varieties to grow they're mostly concerned about uh being able to store that apple a long time and ship that apple across oceans mm-hmm. um yeah. so uh so that might be a, a good variety for that but it's not the best variety for for us consumers um so so yeah and like and even even a fresh picked apple, uh, from an orchard is, is never going to taste as good as a fresh picked apple from your backyard. So I (laughs) always encourage people to, to get those, those fruit trees planted because it's, it's a, a great experience.
0: It is. It is taking care of your family. Yeah. Uh, finally, what is the purpose of the orchard out there? I mean, what is your mission?
1: Yeah, I I'd say overall our, our mission is to, uh, bring more visibility for you of I in the Northern Panhandle, uh, there hasn't been a, a lot of university activity up here since the old R and E station in Sandpoint closed, uh, maybe a little over a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we want we uh, want to make sure that North Idaho uh, residents are are taken care of, and uh, and that they know that we have their interests in mind. Um, with with our agricultural station, we of course North Idaho isn't the agricultural hub of of Idaho, so. Uh, most of our potatoes and everything, and, and large crops, are, are grown in Southern Idaho. So, of course, we could do potato research up here, but our climate is so different from Southern Idaho that the research would never translate. So, our focus is is trying to help uh, farmers and ranchers and gardeners in in Northern Idaho um, that are dealing with a, a shorter growing season and uh, and less uh, and and more moisture and, and that type of thing. So our focus is really trying to uh, focus on that small-scale to medium-scale size agriculture.
2: That's great. And we're all going to benefit from it here in the panhandle and in Washington and Montana, too. Everyone's going to really learn and Uh, grow with this organic research center. Kyle, we haven't mentioned it yet, but I think it's important that we do. Uh, Normally you would have events, at least some events happening in the summer and uh, people would be able to maybe stop by from time to time, but it's going to be different this year because of an event. Yeah, yep. So
1: um, we were one of the uh, buildings that was hit hard uh, when we had that deep freeze back in January. So uh, we had uh, some pipes burst. Uh, in the attic of the second floor, mm. and now we're dealing with uh, water damage and extensive repairs. Uh, so we've we've gone ahead and canceled uh, all of our events out at SOWAC, um through May. Um, we're we're really hoping to be back uh, up and and running by mid June is kind of our hope. So um, all of our ex, uh, extension classes, like our Master Gardeners and Master Foresters classes, have all been uh rearranged uh to to be in different locations uh during this spring but we're we're really hoping that we can uh speed these repairs along and and get people back out here uh, by summer
2: gosh
0: that's a shame you have zoom classes though you have zoom events
1: yeah yep um so uh right now we're in the middle of our uh heritage orchard conference um so the heritage orchard conference was uh a uh, conference that we established here in 2019. And that was uh, an in-person conference of around 70, 80 people from uh, the Pacific Northwest mostly. Uh, We had researchers uh, and Apple enthusiasts from uh, as far as Wyoming and WSU uh, giving us uh, talks during that. Um, And then, of course, uh, the next year as we were starting to plan our our second uh, in-person event, We were hit by covid so uh all in-person events went out the window and we've pivoted into a uh, a webinar series so we have a monthly free webinar series that runs from october through around april each year um so we're in our uh our fourth webinar series now and uh, we've had some amazing speakers um and uh beyond just having some some good content for everybody to to hear on on apples I think I've benefited just by being able to meet some true legends in the heritage Apple community. Uh, John Bunker uh, over at the Maine heritage orchard, the main state Um, it's uh, he's, he's been doing this for, for 60 plus years and to hear his stories and uh, his experiences, it's, it's just um, amazing to, to be able to have him in my contacts in my phone (laughs) and know that I can just give him a call if I have any questions or anything. So uh, it's been been great for for everybody to to be able to receive that content, but I I feel lucky to have been able to make these connections.
0: Oh, great!
1: Gosh, that's great.
0: Well, I'm glad you're still able to do the webinar and and that I did look at your at the site and it it uh, give us the, your web page address.
1: Yeah. So um, what what uh, what I would do is just go to Google and type UI SOAC and that'll bring you right to us. Okay. And, uh, yeah, our, our next, uh, webinar is, uh, February 21st. Uh, we do it the third Wednesday of each month. Um, and, uh, you can still, you, it's, it's a free series, but you do need to get registered for it. So you can go to our website and get registered. Um, so we have, let's see, February, March, and April left this year. And you can also, uh, from that uh, registration page, you can click on webinar series recordings and see all of our webinars from the past four years. So, uh, if you're, you're wanting to do a deep dive into Heritage Apples, uh, that's a, a great place to start. Really some, some amazing stories in there.
0: Great. That's fun. Do your interns take care of all the work out there, or do you have a volunteer crew that comes out and helps you?
1: So uh, through the summer, we usually have two to three interns, uh, undergraduates from the University of Idaho that come and stay with us. Um, and uh, our internship program really focuses on... Uh, getting these interns a diverse, hands-on experience in agriculture. So they're working in our market garden, uh, doing vegetable production. They're working in the orchard, doing fruit production. And then they also uh, work with our livestock we have out there. Uh, Through the growing season, we have uh, sheep and chickens, and we're doing a multi-species rotational grazing program. Um, So we have about a four-acre pasture that's divided into 10 paddocks, and those sheep uh, move to a new paddock mm-hmm. every two to three days, and those chickens follow right behind. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mostly a, a soil health demonstration uh, and showing people uh, how you can really manage two uh, two livestock species in in coordination like that, and benefit your soil and get uh, good growth out of your animals as yes. well.
0: Benefit yeah. your soil that regenerative agriculture exactly.
1: Again. Yeah. Yep. Um, so so we have our summer interns. Uh, we have uh, Kent Youngdahl, um, who is, uh, started out as a SOAC intern years ago, and I just can't get rid of him. He keeps <laughs> hanging around. Um, but uh, no, it, it, he's, he's been a, a great addition. Once he uh, finished his undergraduate program, he came on full time. So it's, it's great to have somebody that's been on site for so long and, and knows the property and has the passion that we're trying to get through there. Yes, uh, and then we also have um, a uh, a local market gardener, uh, Lee Burkaw of Bluefinger Farms. Um, she uh, comes in two days a week and works with our interns in that uh, the vegetable garden, the market garden, um, which is great because they the, she's well versed in, in diversified vegetable production and she can really uh, teach uh, as she's growing with with our interns which and the market great. garden aspect yeah. too, yep. which is exactly. a whole other. Yeah. yep they, they they do some amazing stuff I, and I, I help out as much as I can in the vegetable garden but for the most part i I leave that to them because they they know what they're doing for yeah, sure yeah
2: oh, uh-huh. great well if if listeners were wanting to see it in operation you're not open every day are you it's not open to the public
1: yeah yep especially now that uh, that our building is is in shambles currently but uh, yeah usually uh, it's it's a small crew so we our gate usually isn't open unless we have events going on. Uh, but we also do do tours uh, for for school groups or, or other organizations. We've done tours for uh, homesteading group, the ladies homestead gathering. Uh, we've done all kinds of uh, class or uh, school field trips from from kindergarten through high school. So uh, if if anybody's interested, uh, let let your teacher know and and uh, have them get in contact with me, and we'll we'll set something up.
0: Well, that's that's great. Yes, it does. Thank you so much. Kyle, this we've been with Kyle Nagy of the University of Idaho Organic Orchard Superintendent, and it's been so great having you here again, Kyle. Our third year together. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me on. We'll, we'll be
1: ne- back next year to talk more. Trees. Sounds
2: great. Sounds great. Thank you so much, and good luck this spring. Oh, thank you. Right. Well, Kyle, thank you. I think we'll go to a short song break, but then we're going to be just about out of time, Julie. Yes, so we it... may just say goodbye at this moment. Oh, well, maybe we will. This and is
0: KRFY. You've been listening to the Garden Life Show. We've, we've taken the whole hour to talk to Kyle and it's been very interesting. Um, I guess uh, happy spring. Hope the fog clears. Let's hope there's more snow. What else do I want to say, Julie? I I think
2: that's plenty, (laughs) we'll call it. All right, thanks everybody. Have a great week and I hope you'll enjoy this song picked out by Kyle John Prine with In a Town This Size, a good song. Have a great day.